Welcome to Podcast Sans Frontieres, a James Bond audio experience. Here, we infiltrate the narrative, interrogate the characters, extract the themes, thanks to Q Branch, of course, and finally face down the cinematic behemoth that is the 007 franchise. I admire your luck, Mr. Bond. James Bond. The name's Bomb. Manuclear Bomb. A.K.A. Manu. <laughs> this never happened to the other fella. I'm Brian still. Hi. Today's episode is What a Thrill, where Podcast Sans Frontieres does a little Metal Gear Solid 3 homework by discussing the James Bond franchise, the Ur text for Metal Gear. But first, our spoiler warning for this and every episode. Everything is declassified. We know who Sigint becomes, we know who Merrill marries, we know the fate of Master Kazuhiro Miller. This is not a playthrough podcast. It's all on the table for discussion as we progress through the games. But as we focus in on 007 today, we also want to say very light spoilers for the entire James Bond franchise. We won't be going into plot details specifically, but we won't hesitate to mention them either. Also, the most recent Bond release to theaters uh, is six years old, so... I think all spoiler warnings are off there. It's also it's James Bond. Like, also, who cares about uh, spoiler, like plot spoilers for Spectre? <laughs> yes, <laughs> um, the least consequential of the movies, or at least one of the least consequential, in my opinion. Probably the least because it pretends that it is consequential, and that makes it annoying. Yes, I think we'll, we should have a quick talk about canon and continuity when we get mm-hmm. uh, into the discussion, but. First, we'll do a quick rundown of the fictional and non-fictional history of the James Bond series, followed by how the two of us came to be 00 fans. We'll dish on some of our franchise favorites and bring it back around to how Bond informs Metal Gear. Starting with the origins of James Bond, it is the brainchild of Ian Fleming, who is a former British intelligence officer and journalist. He served in Operation Goldeneye during World War II, which was to monitor Spain for possible ties to Axis powers and then sabotage sabotage those ties or uh, lines of communication. Uh, The plan would end up being abandoned because it was not needed, but uh, later in life, Fleming would name his home in Jamaica Goldeneye. James Bond was created in 1953, the first book being Casino Royale. Fleming would go on to write 12 books and two short story collections spanning 1953 to 1966, uh, two titles being released posthumously. Um, In 1961, he sold option to film rights to Harry Saltzman, who would form Eon Productions with Albert Cubby Broccoli, and they hired Sean Connery to be the first James Bond. Fleming would die in August 1964, which coincidentally is the same month that MGS3 takes place. Uh, The Man with the Golden Gun and Octopussy and the Living Daylights, as one title, were both published posthumously. Several writers would pick up Bond down the road. Raymond Benson is one I read growing up. And he would also appear in radio, comics, and video games, which we'll touch on a little bit later. In terms of film production history, uh, the movies were produced by Eon, like I mentioned, starting in 1962 with Dr. No. Historically distributed by United Artists and later MGM, which is now Columbia, and I don't know. I don't care that much about that stuff. Yeah. But it's pretty consistent with the Bond franchise for the most part. I, I definitely associate United Artists, at least, with uh, James Bond movies. Uh, it is the longest continuing film franchise and the sixth most, pr- sixth most profitable overall, earning over $7 billion worldwide. 
Uh, There have been 24 total films released, with the 25th, No Time to Die, in a COVID holding pattern, but theoretically due out soon. Um, There have been six total actors to play James Bond. Uh, Sean Connery, who starred in Dr. No, From Russia with Love, Goldfinger, Thunderball, You Only Live Twice, and Diamonds Are Forever. George Lazenby, whose only starring role was On Her Majesty's Secret Service, and what a performance it was. It's a great one. Uh, Roger Moore, who starred in Live and Let Die, or yes, uh, Live and Let Die, The Man with the Golden Gun, The Spy Who Loved Me, Moonraker, For Your Eyes Only, uh, Octopussy, and A View to a Kill. Uh, then Timothy Dalton came, starring in A Living Daylight and License to Kill. Enter the modern age of Bond with Pierce Brosnan and Goldeneye, Tomorrow Never Dies, The World Is Not Enough, and Die Another Day. And then finally, we have Daniel Craig, who starred in Casino Royale, Quantum of Solace, Skyfall, and lastly, Spectre. And as noted, all but Lazenby appeared multiple times in the franchise. Craig is the second longest tenured Bond now, isn't he? Yeah, which really surprised me. I guess there have been some bigger gaps in his filmography, but mm-hmm. um, you, like, I mean, Connery went probably nine years, like, officially from mm-hmm. Dr. No to Diamonds Are Forever. And, uh, yeah, so I guess he'd be right behind Moore, right? I guess would be the... Because Moore was, yeah, I think Moore was 17. Uh, he is, Daniel Craig is a, it, significantly so the uh, longest tenured because Moore was 73 to 85. So about 13 years. Oh, wow. Okay, so easily. And it'll be 16 for Craig. And I think this is like, this is it. This has to be it for him, right? Like, I, I think he's done after this one. I think that's the whole point. Yeah. He's been, he's been done after the last three, actually, honestly, but he keeps, he keeps getting back into him. The pay's too good. Yeah. There have also been several uh, non-official James Bond films. In 1954, there was a 19... 19- uh, uh, there was a made-for-TV movie for Casino Royale, most notable for Peter Laurie starring as Le Chiffre. Le Chiffre was played by Mads Mikkelsen in the film release, you know, about a decade and a half back. But Peter Laurie is also a very famous actor. You might recognize him from Casablanca or The Maltese Falcon or M or The Man Who Knew Too Much. So very notable actor, parodied often on The Simpsons. I thought that was the most interesting thing about that. Um, In 1967, there was another movie titled Casino Royale. This was a comedy spoof with Peter Sellers and David Niven, two actors I enjoy a lot, but what I've seen of this movie is not very good. And lastly, speaking of not very good, or at least in my opinion, is Never Say Never Again, which is a semi-remake of Thunderball, or it's pretty much a straight-up remake of Thunderball uh, with a much, much older... uh, Sean Connery reprising the role of Bond in an unofficial role, but also Kim Basinger is in it, and that's about the only thing else I remember of that movie. Yeah, I watched like forty five minutes of that one once. It has, it has all the same like interminable like Thunderball is the most. We'll talk about this. Thunderball is like the most obviously adapted from a novel of all the original movies, of all the ones that were direct adaptations, and like the movie has that problem too. But it, the movie at least gets away with like. You know, like in his peak sexual charisma of of Connery, and like it looks cool and interesting. And like never say never again is just boring. Like I, I didn't, I didn't like what I saw of it at all. It's a but, very dull movie. Yeah, James Bond, charming, sophisticated secret agent, <laughs> shaken but not disturbed. Now let's dive into James Bond as a character, aka Agent 007. 
has a license to kill or be killed, as is sometimes noted. He's an amalgamation of people Fleming knew through his time in Royal Naval Intelligence and working as a journalist. He he was technically named after ornithologist James Bond, who was a Caribbean bird expert, which is actually what Big Boss poses as during the story of Peace Walker while he's making his way through Nicaragua and uh, surrounding countries, Costa Rica. And the name James Bond is meant to be dull or blunt, John Doe-ish or very generic. Anyone can slip that name on, uh, whether that's specifically true or not. But it's not supposed to be... Uh, you know, a Sherlock Holmes or Pennyweather Hairwinkle or anything like that. It's supposed to be very non, you know, conspicuous. Yeah, it's very, it's a very British, it's the kind of British names that actually exist and not the ones that they want you to think exist. <laughs> yes. And Bond is defined as a man of pleasures, um, which is largely reflecting Fleming's lifestyle post-service, uh, uh, which means smoking, drinking, fancy clothes, fast cars, gambling, golfing, lots of sex, uh, nice watches, you name it, it's... Yeah, like in a, in a, in a first-class way, though. Like that's where a lot of the, especially where a lot of the service-level stuff that people like about Bond, which, to be fair, <clears throat> is most of the most of what's going on there there's not a whole i wouldn't say there's a whole lot underneath <laughs> you know it's not the most nuanced uh stuff in the world but yeah i think the service level stuff is really uh that sort of living that like debaucherous life but in a fancy way like not a, in a way that, that the average person just isn't going to be able like way beyond the means of the person watching the movie because i think yeah. where it comes from it's a certain archetype that also informs characters like, say, Don Draper and Man Men. Yes. Um, because he exudes a lot of that same energy and engages in the same um, indulgences, even though he's not a secret agent killing people. Uh, but it's a lot of the same trappings of that kind of lifestyle or an idealized lifestyle or perception yeah. of manhood. Are you are you a uh, AV Club commenter in the year two thousand eight? Because you're this this uh, tying John Hammond to James Bond is giving me some really strong flashbacks. <laughs> no, I don't think I was. Listen, I support it. Like, he would have been great. He would, he would have been great. <laughs> oh yeah, I, I yeah, I still would be about it or something similar to that. So Bond is an extremely capable killer. Going back to that license to kill, trained in hand to hand combat, weapons, vehicles. Um, he's considered extremely smart on all matters, both martial and non-martial. Um, he has a commander rank uh, in the Navy, uh, so he's a leader of men to some degree or has been in his career. Most famously known for carrying the Walter PPK, a 7.65 millimeter gun. Uh, he carried around a 25 millimeter ACP Beretta in his early stories, but Fleming was contacted by a fan named Jeffrey Boothroyd, who said the PPK would be better choice for Bond's character. And the character of Q, Q is Major Boothroyd um, as a way of thanks to that fan. Uh, in to Tomorrow Never Dies and Die Another Day, uh, later, or through a Die Another Day, the later Pierce Brosnan movies, he would carry the Walter P99, which was an attempt to somewhat modernize uh, Bond's hardware, um, although they'd returned to the PPK during the Daniel Craig years. But that, that you know, that also, the Daniel Craig stuff is, especially the start, it's a, it was a reboot. That was the idea. Right. You're going back to the origins and the original yeah. Bond trapping, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, diving into Bond trappings and film tropes, uh, first of all is the James Bond theme. It's one of the most uh, familiar, uh, popular scores or main theme songs uh, in cinema history. Maybe, maybe the most famous, actually. 
Yeah. Uh, one thing that we are not, I haven't specifically written anywhere here, but Bond is extremely international in terms of its audience. Yes. Uh, being one of the first film franchises that went to other countries, filmed on location, uh, did a lot of stunt work and had, you know, characters speaking in different languages. Uh, it made itself very international despite it being very British and imperialist in a lot of its storylines. So. Yeah. A lot of the, uh, a lot of the appeal of the, especially the Connery ones is that they're, they kind of, come off like travel movies almost yeah it's yeah it's like bond hanging out in jamaica bond hanging out in uh in new orleans well that's roger moore but still yeah it, it it's a way to travel in a way where uh tv and movies weren't really doing all that and not showing yeah. you stuff like that quite yet um now it's the standard to go film around the world to do whatever um but you know back then it was still very novel and this is how people saw other parts of the world for you know a lot of people who didn't have the money to travel or anything like that yep uh, most Bond movies uh, open up with uh, white dots going across a black screen, which turn into a gun barrel. And then you see James Bond walk across and shoot at the camera and blood kind of roll down. Each Bond has their own stance. Uh, you know, it's slightly varied from each Bond. And then the most recent Daniel Craig era has been very playful with this gun barrel sequence, uh, sometimes putting it at the end of the movie or putting it somehow in the context of what's happening in an opening sequence um, or Bond appearing like in a hallway, I think, to open Skyfall is one that I think about as well. Uh, Bond movies are often known for a pre-title action sequence uh, prior to the main theme song. Um, usually uh, these include uh, very extensive stunt work, um, pioneering stuff at times, uh, but usually a Bond movie opens with a bang, you know, to the point where Goldfinger literally opens with him blowing something up uh, and then frying a guy in a bathtub. So, uh, you know, action relative to what was considered action for its era, but absolutely shocking. It's a great line. <laughs> yes. And then, of course, there's the title song. Uh, most of the Bond movies have a uh, sequence. And when I say most, it's usually just the beginning couple of movies. Dr. No and From Russia With Love didn't have the formula quite down, but everything after it generally did. Um, so there'd usually there's a title song. It's usually the name of the movie itself. There are a couple exceptions. Uh, Octopussy song is called All Time High. Uh, I think there are a couple others. Uh, the Spy Who Loved Me is uh, Nobody Does It Better by Carly Simon. But for the most part, they try to get the uh, title song to be named the same thing is as... Skyfall's name something else? Or No, not Skyfall. Um, no, uh, Spectre, I mean. Sorry. Uh, Spectre's is like that Sam Smith song. So yeah, I don't think it's called Spectre. And I don't think the Audio Slave song or Chris Cornell, I don't think it's called Casino Royale either. No, it's called You Know My Name. Yeah, that's it. So, but mostly, mostly, this is, I would say, at least two thirds. Yes. Um, and then, uh, going into more Bond trappings, uh, maybe most famously is the fact that James Bond has many uh, gadgets that got quirkier and goofier over time. Um, things like uh, watches that shoot lasers, uh, belts with grappling hooks. Uh, pens that blow up. I think I just named three just from GoldenEye. So <laughs> help me out if you got a couple other examples. Well, I like a, one fun thing to track with these movies because they've been around for. I think that's part of the the appeal is that it's this it's the continuity, not in like you know plot, but like just the continuity and that this is the same series and the same people making the decisions. It's like you look back at like From Russia with Love and it's all a bunch of actual spy stuff that that really existed. It's like bleeding edge, like recording devices and stuff. And now we're at the point where it's like James Bond can control a plane with his phone. And it's just like becoming nonsense. 
Yeah. And I, I really love tracking that stuff. Uh, I, I'm thinking specifically of the, uh, my, I think my favorite all time uh, Bond gadget is the, uh, the, be, yeah, the remote control car thing in Tomorrow Never Dies, which is yeah absurd now. Like we know that doesn't work well now. So the idea of that have that being functional in 1997 and not just like losing connection every three seconds is really fun to think about. Yeah, no, I, th- I think it's fun because, like you said, you can track um, like the technology of the time evolving, and then Bond playing on that because, like you said, from Russia with Love, he gets a suitcase with some practical spy stuff in it. Um, like Living Daylights, he has like the automated like car whistle, yeah. so- you know, sound yeah. machine. Uh, so it's like very reflective of what the technology was at the time, which is really cool. There are also big gun movies for obvious reasons, but I know like the um, the sniper he uses in the Living Daylights was actually like the one that the that the British military used and they had to like make a special one for him. Oh, that's cool. It's uh, apparently it's like in a museum because it's like it was like the most sophisticated gun the British military had ever made to that point. It was like a functioning rifle that they custom made for this movie. And it's cool. It's like that stuff's oh, that. like guns are bad, but like as like pieces of collector stuff they're cool like they look yeah. nice oh, they, they, sure. they can look nice that gun looks handsome that's a handsome gun mm-hmm. and it looks good in timothy dalton's hands it's it's um the uh the main sniper rifle in the new hitman games is base is basically that gun i was really excited when i thought when i realized what it was oh that's cool moving on another major trapping of bond films is the quote-unquote bond girl um, or femme fatale sometimes these are two different characters sometimes they're the same character um, but these are the ones associated with basically bad horny puns like pussy galore or good night uh good head zenya on a top yes uh dr christmas jones which isn't really a pun in the name but it you know is used for some really groaners uh during the actual script so truly awful writing yes uh so there's so this is that's one of the ickier uh parts sometimes of the bond movies maybe more times than not yeah they they can they kind of swing between like like lighthearted dumb puns like deliberately stupid puns which i think most people are a fan of to like some real questionable shit uh Yes, and we'll we'll, we'll uh, make some space to talk about some of the problematic aspects yeah. of Bond here in a second. So can't really ignore it. No, uh, flipping the script a little bit. Uh, usually on the opposite side of Bond is an evil mastermind. Um, sometimes without their face showing, often stroking a cat, uh, speaking from a chair, um, who usually has some sort of global reaching plans in terms of world domination, holding the world hostage, launching nuclear bombs, and starting Armageddon stuff like that. They often have henchmen with uh, weird gimmicks or idiosyncrasies in terms of how they battle or kill people. Uh, characters such as Odd Job, who throws a hat that kills people, or Jaws, who has metal teeth. Uh, these are just some examples, and some of them, again, just get wild and crazy. Uh, Zenya Anatop, one of those uh, that you mentioned earlier. Uh, they often have uh, Secret Lair, um, the famous volcano. Uh, you know, that opens up and is a secret enemy base that comes from James Bond, but sometimes it'll be a secret floating island or just a regular island. Uh, often these Bond villains have some sort of fortress, which they, you know, do their evil masterminding from. It's it's such a trope at this point, even like the more, quote unquote, realistic villains. Like I think uh, Jonathan Price in, in Tom and Arnold Never Dies is like, as far as world domination plans go, is like somewhat tethered to reality he's just a newspaper magnate who's trying to incite conflicts where he sells my newspapers that's like oh that's realistic he also has a giant like sub 
like a and it's more it's like a like a giant boat base that's like extremely unrealistic and impractical and it's invisible to all radar it's like completely over the top and ridiculous which i think is what makes that movie work yeah it, the movie does work but like yeah that that's the second time i mentioned that movie i guess i like it more than i was thinking i did i do too and it, it's like a little water shagahat really to think about it the way it uh, visually looks yeah going on uh I mentioned James Bond as a commander uh, with an official rank, uh, especially early on in the series. He was often depicted as a leader, not necessarily of straight up troops. Um, sometimes it was troops, but often like a local gang or, you know, yeah. power leader or politician that he fell in with or a local rich person. But you often see him leading like a band of ninjas or a band of uh, gangsters or something in the final encounter. Um, it tends to be like an all-out battle or war, so to speak. Uh, it's definitely something that was emphasized a lot more during the Connery and maybe the early uh, more years, but you still see it from now and then. And I like that uh, aspect of it. I also like the uh, him. It's happened a lot in the Connery movies of him like sort of assembling a ragtag bunch of weirdos to be his like they're all his friends mm-hmm. that doesn't happen as much as it used to i miss that yeah but that's where you can get like a felix lighter involved yeah or uh some of the other characters usually the bond girl slash femme fatale there's usually someone that switches sides which is very typical of spy movies so um you can have a fun little force taking it on uh you know what uh wade uh, the cia guy from the golden eye arrow who just kind of pops up out of nowhere. Who was not in any other Bond movies before that. How dare you? <laughs> no. Uh, I don't know what you mean or The Living Daylights or something like that. Um, Bond movies are very famously known for their stunt work and set pieces. Uh, we'll actually probably dish on some of our favorite ones later on. Um, there's often like elaborate traps or, you know, setups in which uh, Bond has to face. Um that include dangerous animals, um, you know, things like alligators or sharks, um, something, you know, very obviously parodied by Austin Powers and that, especially that first movie, uh, International Man of Mystery, um, which I think actually holds up as a pretty solid James Bond parody overall. Yeah, I just watched it like a year and a half ago. It's a very good movie still. Yes. It's very, it's like, it's, it's a movie that is not the funniest movie in the world to me, but it has a handful of like perfect jokes. Yes. And that it, it works it works really well. We got diminishing returns is what I'll say with the rest of those movies. Well, especially with like two, which is mostly driven by dick jokes. But the first movie is really, really driven by the James Bond parody. Like who does number two work for um, and all that stuff. It's really meant to be a play on James Bond. And the rest of it just became standard SNL, lowbrow comedy kind of stuff. Yeah, well, it, it also works with a lot of the, uh, a lot of these like, the late 90s early 2000s like character comedies like this check out this funny character right uh man of mystery works because like it's you're you're supposed to think austin is funny like you're supposed to laugh at him you're like oh this guy's weird and like he became too popular so the next two movies is just like everyone think like he no he is actually cool it's not like a joke <laughs> right thing it's not it's, it's, they're not parodying anything dr evil did the same thing where it's like oh now this guy's cool you like him he's your friend and it's like no, i don't want him to be my friend he sucks <laughs> He's an asshole. Um, but yeah, no, Man of Mystery is still a very good movie. It's also like 85 minutes long. It works. Yeah, it's great. Breezy. And selfishly, they you know, I mean, they got like, the cast is perfect. It's got late 90s Elizabeth Hurley in it, which is good for me to see. I, I like Elizabeth Hurley a lot. Yeah, no, she's a fine actress, but like that's her at her absolute peak also. Mm-hmm. It's just, it's a good movie. It's a, it's a, it's a solid movie with a lot of good jokes. And, and uh, Rob Lowe is not in it, so that makes me feel good. Yes. <laughs> 
And I do want to make a little time here to mention that uh, James Brond and even his creator, Ian Fleming, are pretty hell of a problematic characters um, in the fact that, you know, they're both very um, imperialist, just the nature of being in the British Secret Service and the predominant empire, um, at least going into World War II. And uh, then that's when America really started emerging afterwards as the dominant power. But um, these stories reflect sort of imperialist storylines, often treating the global south and those sort of nations as, um, you know, exotic locales, sometimes very othering or orientalist depictions of uh, the local communities or crowds. Yeah. Um, there's a uh, yellow face in you only live twice where Sean Connery is. That's what I was thinking of made to look Asian. Uh, so there's, there's a lot of problematic aspects of James Bond. And if anyone says like, I watch some of these and there's a couple that I just can't get through. I, I don't blame them because, um, I don't think like the one, you know, uh, Octopussy is the one that goes into India and it's not, great but it's not like as outwardly offensive as like say temple of doom was to me yeah i, th I think that movie that movie surprisingly you, you probably doesn't go as poorly as you would think a movie from that era set in india would but yeah it's also it's not a very good movie either i don't think it's it's fine it, it exists its biggest offense is being dull more than anything yeah um you do get a bond set piece involving clowns which i guess is interesting uh but other than that it's it's not anything to write home about and uh, but not to zero in on that movie, it's it's a thing, and they've generally kind of gotten a little more self-aware and better about it, uh, and we'll see, you know, they have Lashana Lynch uh, scheduled to play 007 in this new No Time to Die movie that's scheduled to come out, uh, So, and she is a black actress, and we don't know what that means that she will be taking on the role of 007, whether that, you know, is a handoff or a retirement, a death. Um, but that's something that's heavily rumored to be part of this. Not to focus on that, but also on top of obviously the racism, there's a lot of misogynistic aspects to the James Bond character in movies. Uh, the women are often very shot exploitatively and, you know, they're often treated as sex objects, things to be won, um, often very scantily clad, often in the third act, just in nothing but a bikini top or something like that. Um, they are definitely there for the male audience members and... It's it's not always great, uh, but you will also see kind of a progression of that. Um, like especially with like Golden Eye, you see like third wave feminism kind of you know show itself in the way that Money Penny and M address Bond. Um, that it's not going to be like you know the way that Bond treated uh, Ursula Andress back in Doctor No. That the times have changed and have kind of left the James Bond character behind. So they try to address it, but at this point, I'd say about two thirds of. Uh, the series was before they were really aware of some of those aspects and issues with the source material. Yeah, the one I think that's what the Craig, the Craig era is going to be most remembered for is is kind of tweaking that formula a lot because like mm -hmm. uh, Casino Royale. I mean, that's the source material, but like uh, Vesper is she's great, very much the opposite of that character, and then becomes like and I, again, in a lot of I was talking about this with the, in the other episode. In a lot of ways, she's the protagonist of that movie. Mm -hmm. Because, like, she's the one who does everything, basically. sets so the whole plot in motion. And then, like, Quantum of Solace, uh, the, the, there's two things to recommend that movie for. One is that there isn't really a Bond girl. Like, Olga Kirilenko is just sort of another person who's also there to get revenge. Mm -hmm. Like, there's no like, – there's no – she's not viewed as a sexual object by the movie at all. And then the other thing to be recommended is, like, there's good action in it. But, boy, it's not a very good movie otherwise. Skyfall. Skyfall doesn't have a Bond girl. M is the Bond girl. 
Yeah, that was what I wanted to mention is that um, M emerges as a like a major character because often M would just kind of be at the beginning of the story and set Bond loose uh, for the rest of the movie. But uh, it started a little bit uh, during the end of the Brosnan era uh, with uh, The World Is Not Enough where M was a little... And Tomorrow Never Dies also with yeah. uh, Michelle Yeoh is portrayed as Bond's equal in the movie, which is nice. Another Tomorrow Never Dies reference. Yeah, even though I think I'd, she'd probably beat the shit out of Pierce Brosnan in real life. But hey, Pierce Brosnan is a good Irish man. He doesn't know how to fight. Yeah. Is he your, is he your Grand Admiral Thrawn? Because a lot of people like that casting. Yeah, sure. I don't... I, I wouldn't be mad at it. Good. good. Because I think you're a sexist, misogynist dinosaur. A relic of the Cold War. Whose boyish charms, though wasted on me, obviously appeal to that young woman I sent out to evaluate you. Now that we got a lot of uh, the Bond baggage out of the way, we'll talk about our own experiences coming to Bond. I'll throw it to you first. Uh, Why don't you hit me with uh, how you met Bond or how you grew up with Bond and your general relationship with the Bond franchise? Nobody else my age will have this story. I was playing GoldenEye 007 a lot with my my brothers. (laughs) I think I had seen a few. Like, you see a few, but, like, again, I don't think we... I didn't have cable at my mom's, and she... She would not have been like, you can't watch this, but I do think she would have been turning off, like, I don't know, Octopussy or something at like 9.30 at night. But like, um, no, we definitely played a lot of a lot of uh, GoldenEye, and then GoldenEye, I think I may have seen it before the game came out, but I didn't remember it, because I was eight when the game came out. Yeah. So yeah, then I just started watching a lot of them when they'd be on. My dad actually, uh, this won't get him in trouble, it's been 50, 20 years now. When he was uh, uh, separated from his wife for about a year and a half in like 99, he was living at his, on his own place and he was actually stealing HBO from one of his neighbors. Nice. <laughs> and uh, so when I went over there, we didn't have anything else to do. My sister and I, it was just us because our other my other stepbrothers are all my dad's wife's kids, so they weren't there. So I'd go over there every other weekend and I wouldn't have anything to do, so we would just watch... I probably saw Titan AE like 15 times, like Deep Blue Sea, Romeo Must Die. Romeo Must Die is one of my favorite movies now because of that. But then a lot of Bond movies also because those are always playing somewhere. So I think that's where I saw probably, I'd say probably 12, 10 or 12 of them. That's how I saw them. And then the rest of them I actually like went and found when I was older and wanted to complete. Because that's really the weird thing about Bond. And I'm sure we're going to mention this. It's really strange being a Bond person because like... (laughs) How many of the movies are good? Like outside of the context of being part of the Bond franchise, there's like a third. Yeah, I, I was about to say, I think a third of them are good. Another third of them I pretty much enjoy or there are moments that I will watch it for. And then I, I don't know if it's a third that I absolutely do not like, but it's definitely like six or seven that I like really don't have any interest to revisit. I mean, that's about a third. I would say of that, of that third most of them are bad and there's a few that are like good bad like bad good movies like mm-hmm. like legitimately not good movies that are still enjoyable uh Mo- moonraker has some bits i like but i think it's like a, an atrocious movie because that's really the weird allure like there's nothing else that i'm into that i could think of like that i mean maybe wrestling but wrestling is not like a wrestling is an entirely different thing that you can't really structure it that way um I guess technically the Simpsons applies in that way, but I don't consider like I don't watch the bad stuff, whereas I do watch the bad Bond stuff or the mediocre Bond stuff. Like whereas the Simpsons, I only really watch the seasons that are considered like to be the finest television. I think I've only seen one or two episodes since like season fifteen. Yeah, and it was when, when was when did the movie come out? When was the movie? Two thousand eight. So yeah, that's about 
I think I may have seen a couple then. But I, 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 my work used to have, in a break room, we used to have an antenna TV station going at all times. And also they had the network stuff in there. And uh, more than once when I was working on a Sunday, I would come in right at the start of a Simpsons episode, take my lunch and watch it. And the last one I remember seeing was the Elon Musk episode. And it was oh, one God. of the worst things I've ever seen. Yes. And this was like before I even knew that much about Elon Musk. Like I knew enough that I probably wasn't a fan, but it was like, yeah, it was, it was rough. It was really yeah, yeah. bad. Like not like completely divorced from the, from Elon Musk being in it and the weird politics of that. Like it just wasn't funny at all. It was really bad. Well, that's good news because Elon Musk just got scheduled to be on Saturday Night Live, so I'm sure yeah, that'll sounds be great. It. Let's let's get this guy who uh, looks like he's never talked, spoken <laughs> to other people before. Let's get him on this comedy sketch show. Yeah, maybe they'll cancel it finally. <laughs> please, please put it out of its misery. It's one of the worst things on going. So uh, my experience with James Bond, I grew up with 007 from a very early age. Uh, That's because my dad, in terms of Western cinema, only really liked 007 and mafia movies. So that was James Bond, The Godfather, uh, stuff like that. Um, So we had a bunch of Connery and more movies on Betamax tapes, which is a predecessor slash competitor with VHS that lost out. Yeah, people may not know what that is. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it it was basically kind of a smaller VHS tape, and a VHS tape, if you don't know, um, is like a big black rectangle that you shoved into a cable box-like thing, and it played stuff. Um, The the previous to DVDs. On on uh, On a box TV, which was an old kind of TV that used to exist. Yes, so... Um, because of that, um, that's how I saw not all the Bonds, but a big chunk of them. And we definitely had some of the big ones like From Russia With Love and Goldfinger and The Spy Who Loved Me. And they were often just taped off TV where my dad could find it, um, not like purchased as the official release. Um, and James Bond, I think, is a big dad thing. Um, yeah, my dad definitely. My dad definitely watches them too. And, and you know, that's because of that traditional... Um, masculinity trappings we talked about that idealized man image for that certain era um but it's also a big immigrant dad thing because everyone i know who's you know first or second generation here especially from south asian and east asian countries a lot of them also have affinity for james bond and you know a lot of that has to do again with it being a very international franchise So I grew up during the gap between Dalton and Brosnan movies, uh, which was 1989 to 1995. That's kind of like when I was becoming a real human. I wasn't like a five-year-old anymore, um, starting to formulate thoughts. And that that was the biggest gap at the time since the movie started coming out in 1962 between Bond movies. Um, There was a scrap Dalton movie in that era that had um, some of the GoldenEye actors in it. That's a movie I think about a lot, honestly. I... Like, I like Pierce Brosnan a lot. I own, I'm looking at it right now, I own a framed publicity photo of him as James Bond for Goldeneye that I found at a thrift store for $1. Uh, but, like, Goldeneye is by far the best Brosnan movie. I think about it a lot. What would have happened if that exact movie happened with Dalton? It would be terrific. We're going to get to my favorites, but I think Goldeneye would be hands down the best Bond movie if that was Timothy yes. Dalton. And that's not really any disrespect to Brosnan. It's just I think Dalton is the perfect actor for that story um, because it's definitely a more personal James Bond story. Pissed off Bond. Yeah. Imagine him Imagine him giving the no, for me line. <laughs> for me. So just like pissed. There's a lot more menace that uh, Dalton can pull off there. But yeah. especially, especially early Pierce because he didn't like, 
he he got a little better at that kind of dropping that veneer of unflappability. Like in World's Not Enough, that's like the best part about that movie to me is him becoming slowly angrier and angrier with the movie. But Dalton from the from the jump, like License to Kill is the the, the mo- is the pissed off Bond movie, and boy does he is he pissed off. Right. So um, back back in the day, TBS used to do. Uh, TBS being the TV channel, uh, 15 Days of 007, and which would later become 17 Days of 007 during the mid to late 90s, usually around the holidays. I especially remember this with like winter break during uh, school or uh, Thanksgiving break, uh, just sitting around and watching Bond movies, waiting to eat. Um, and that's basically where I caught up on everything. Um, between that and the local public library, I was able to find everything up until uh, License to Kill and kind of get it knocked out between eighth grade through, yeah, basically eighth and ninth grade. And then, of course, there was GoldenEye. Um, I didn't get to see GoldenEye in theaters. I was, that was 95 or... Yes. Yeah, 95. So um, I was 11 years old, so I was just a little bit young, but I would see every Bond afterwards that came out in theaters. Um, On top of, you know, the James Bond thing, GoldenEye is the place that I would be introduced to Sean Bean, Famke Jansen, Alan Cummings, and Judy Dench, who are all fantastic actors. Um, Sean Bean especially would go on to be in a lot of my favorite stuff, namely The Lord of the Rings. Really? He's, he's never been, you never mentioned anything he's been in before. No. Is there anything else besides Lord of the Rings he's been in that I would know of? Yeah, isn't he in uh, Jupiter Ascending? That's, that's uh, right, true. Oh, he's in Hitman <laughs> too. also. That's right. Nothing <laughs> else, though. Uh, Famke Jansen, who I think played an admirable Jean Grey in the early X-Men movies. Famke, she's a good actress. Yeah, And Alan Cummings, who's a delightful uh, Boris Grishenko in this movie, uh, also in, good in the X-Men movie that he's in as Nightcrawler. Yeah. Um, I thought that was a fun take. And then I think Judy Dench being the most notable for the Bond franchise here um, because she would carry on into the Daniel Craig era and, as we mentioned, go on to be a much bigger character within the stories themselves. Oh, um, I'm bringing this up again. I don't know why I'm bringing it up. It's not like she was in anything you like. Uh, Diana Rigg is also famously in a Bond movie. Yes. Yes, she is. And she's probably gives, honestly, probably gives the best performance anyone gives in any Bond movie. Yes. I, I would say... Certainly. I mean, Sean Bean might be a competitor, honestly. Sean Bean's great. Yes, he's... That's one of the things... I, I want to bring this up now because you're going to talk about the, the game more. Uh, have you ever seen or, or experienced the uh, the GoldenEye remake for the Wii? I did not. I did not. So they basically... It's actually kind of cool. They basically just remade the game entirely but with new actors. With, 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 yes, uh, I knew they did that. With Daniel Craig. The only thing I don't like about it is that the guy they get to play 006 just isn't... It's just not not at all up to that material the way that Sean Bean was. Oh, that's a shame. Yeah. Cause he's really like, just he's, he's right on that line where he's hamming it up like the way any good Bond villain should, but he's also like very serious and very angry and has like a personal stake in it. It's a great performance. It's Sean yeah. Bean like in the nineties. He's terrific. Uh, so the, the video game, which Brian also mentioned in his history, was just a huge thing for us. We'd play GoldenEye after school all through weekends. Um, admittedly, I, I kicked ass at it. I think everyone who would, you know, probably thinks they did, but I definitely did. And I don't mean I just played with Odd Job or anything. Um, but it was, it was a great game. It was a landmark game. It was one of the first great shooters on console games and ones you can play multiplayer with a, four friends, which was mind-blowing at the time. 
Yeah, I grew up with I again I have three stepbrothers. So it's perfect. It's it's perfect. <laughs> you can imagine what we, what we were doing. Yeah. That was my first real experience to playing video games in general. Like yeah, it it's you really can't you really can't go say it. you know, I actually got to play that again. I, I'm gonna this I it'd probably be the last time I ever play Goldeneye. I went to a uh, convention, some kind of I don't even remember what it was, in Milwaukee in twenty seventeen. And it was like a retro video gaming thing. And one of the like showrooms had a big had a uh, projection screen with with Goldeneye on it, and I played it with my two of my same stepbrothers. Yeah, and we played it for like twenty minutes. Did two did two rounds, and we were kind of just like, yeah, it's, it's still Goldeneye. And it's just like I don't need to play it anymore. I think this is that's kind of the once you play a Goldeneye on a like a seventy inch projection screen, you're kind of what else can you do with it? Right, wonderful game. And because of the video game, the film, it's being the first real James Bond movie I lived through with like human consciousness. Um, it was the one I lived through through middle and high school. Goldeneye and the whole Brosnan era is one that meant, you know, kind of the one I have strong feelings for. It's the one that also overlapped with the first couple Metal Gear Solid titles. Um, so I have um, a lot of connections between the two and a lot of fondness for Goldeneye and the uh, Brosnan era. But generally speaking, I kind of like all Bonds. We kind of mentioned, you know, a third of them are probably complete garbage. Another third of them are probably not very good or just flawed in some, you know, foundational way. But the Bond movies were very formative for me because I was watching them so young um, and they become a core interest of mine. And it also informs a lot of my love for other stuff in terms of the spy genre, uh, Metal Gear Solid specifically being one of those things. And James Bond is one of those things that's permeated through um, the cultural zeitgeist where it's referenced everywhere from The Simpsons to The Dark Knight has references to James Bond stuff. So uh, personally, I like my Bond movies to be a little on the sillier side. Um, I like some of the goofiness with it. Um, but otherwise, I really prefer the spy Cold War style stories, um, usually invoking USSR, Russia. And I also think that has to go back to what we were talking about, the problematic aspects of James Bond. Those are usually James Bond interacting with white people, which usually ends up being a lot less ickier than uh, some of the older uh, going to the global South countries that they had. And while we're here, um, we'll go into some of our favorite and least favorite Bond movies. Um, I don't think there's any like sense to really do this any other way because me and Brian have four of the same five uh, Bond movies out of like the 25 uh, that are slated to be out. Uh, so I'll just kind of name them off and we'll just mention it. And I'll just start with Goldeneye, um, which you had as your fifth. Uh, I have as my first, but we've talked so much about it. It was definitely just, it feels like one of the bigger Bond movies to just come out in our lifetimes. And then on top of that, it's also just really great. A lot of it because of the performances surrounding uh, Pierce Brosnan in his first time as Bond. Yeah, it's one of the better supporting casts, right? Like down like the entire thing. I think like the actress who plays Natalia is great. The guy who plays Ormov yep. and Mishkin, like just all the little roles are filled out so well. I used to play as Mishkin. <laughs> I don't yeah. know why. I think he had a beard, and I was like, "Or goatee, or goatee," and I was like, "That guy is cool." I'm eight. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, and I do love. Um, there's just a couple huge uh, set pieces in the movie. Um, it opens with a big one with him. Uh, bungee jumping off a dam and then somehow also being somewhere where he can in 10 minutes later jump off a cliff up from a motorcycle go into a falling plane and then pull up the plane what an incredible stunt yeah yes and uh, later on he drives a tank through the downtown of st petersburg 
Um, I don't know. I didn't look into the logistics of where and how that was actually filmed, but that looks fantastic and is one of the cooler moments. Um, there's just a lot of great stuff. Uh, and I, I think a lot of it is Sean Bean as 006, Alec Trevelyan. Um, it had a good little plot twist in there with him coming back. Um, and that, you know, when you're 11 years old or 12 years old, that plot twist definitely is like, oh, no shit. Um, but it was also cool to see <laughs> Bond against another double O agent because I just I just thought they brought that I just thought that guy was never going to show up again. It was just a little aside. That's crazy. <laughs> yes, um, and I actually knew the little factoid about Yanis and the Two Faced God because uh, Batman the Animated Series had dropped that in a Two Two Face episode uh, just a little bit before this movie. So, um, anything you want to say about Goldeneye? I know it's probably the one we've talked about the most so far. It's just a, it's a, it's a good like it's a great nonsense spy movie it's great now looking back because it's almost 30 years old and so like the it actually plays a little bit of that y2k stuff we were talking about before like people were afraid of computers and and really hesitant to rely on this super advanced technology like these big honking dells that they're that they're <laughs> that boris is typing on yeah i i yeah it's just a, it's a good movie i don't know what else to say about it chair would uh, fail every password strength validation uh, that there is. Yep. Um, so uh, why don't you say your number one because it's my number two. Um, I assume yours is ordered. Yes. Um, from from Russia with love. It's a, it's a fantastic movie. I don't know what else to say about it. It's it's one of those more serious spy movies where it's a little bit more about passing information, surveillance. I would argue it's the best spy movie ever made. Like if, if that's what you're looking for a spy movie to be. Yes, um, I, I think it's really great. There's a lot of uh, little subterfuge, um, a lot of tracking stuff. Um, it really does a lot, as close as James Bond comes to like a John Le Carré novel, yeah. like Tinker, Taylor, Soldier, Spy, this is definitely it. Um, I would also say it's the one that maybe most influenced Metal Gear Solid 3, which we're yes. going to be diving into. Um, and it's the one that's explicitly named uh, in the movie uh, so, or in the game rather. So, I'd also add it has two of the most iconic uh, set pieces as well. Um, first, the battle with um, Red Grant and the train between Sean Connery and oh God, what's the Jaws actor's name uh, who plays Red Grant here? I forget, but I know who you're talking about. But uh, he's great. Obviously, yeah, I know he, who you're talking about. Yeah. But yeah, that's that was uh, it's uh, hailed as one of the greatest fight scenes in cinema, especially for that time and for all time. Like it's just really well staged in that close quarters uh, scenario within that uh, drain uh, room or vestibule. I don't know my training terminology, but uh, it's a really great set piece. And then also the closing. It's, it's such a good fight that even something that vaguely references it in Spectre becomes the best part of Spectre. Mm-hmm. The Dave Batista fight, which is good. Terrific. And then the rest of the movie sucks. <laughs> Confusing. Uh, this is also a fight they would uh, mimic again in Live and Let Die with uh, the guy with the grappling hook or, grapp- yes. or the claw hand. Um, they also have a train fight. So they try to uh, mimic this one uh, a couple times in the franchise. And then the closing fight scene in the hotel room between Sean Connery and Colonel Kleb, which is most notab- notable for the fact that uh, she clicks her heels and a blade comes out the point of her uh, shoe which is something that gets parodied a lot or referenced a lot i mentioned the dark knight earlier where the joker pulls that off when he's in bruce wayne's uh, penthouse uh trying to find harvey dent so um yeah no for marshall with love's great i think of the old bonds it's like easily my favorite it'd have to be yeah yeah I, I, I like the other ones just feel so archaic compared to it yeah 
like like watch watch Doctor Doctor No like watch Doctor No is not a bad movie. It's it's for a sixties action movie. It's pretty good. But watching that and From Us with Love back to back, it's it's stark. Yes. Okay. Uh, then let's do uh, my. Th- third one after golden nine from russia with love is the living daylights and i want before i go into the living daylights i want to be obvious here that the th- my top three movies are bond russia cold warish kind of movies between golden eye from russia with love and living daylights yeah um so living daylights is a timothy dalton movie i think it's fantastic it's definitely a little more serious dalton plays a much more serious james bond um it does a lot it talks it uh the brave fighters of the Mujahideen are honored in this movie uh, because James Bond works alongside the Mujahideen against uh, Soviet aggressors. Um, it's not quite so. It's a, a former Soviet official kind of wants to become his own crime lord boss, and he's uh, working with an American arms dealer played by the guy who would go on. Uh, John Doe Baker is a Joe Don Baker. I forget. Joe Don Baker. Yeah. Joe Don Baker. Um, so it's a very serious spy movie. There's a defection where it looks like. Uh, This Russian guy is going to defect to um, America or the West, rather. um, But it's all kind of a setup for him to do his own plan to pit the West and the East against each other. Um, It's got some very goofy but really fun uh, action sequences. uh, Cars driving over ice and snow. Um, It becomes a rocket house at one point because they drive into a shed and the shed drives along with them. They go tobogganing in a cello case. Um, It's... This all sounds very goofy, but um, it's all actually played very straight in a way. That's that's what you get. Only Timothy Dalton can give you can give you that, and can give you lines like "I scared the living daylights out of her" without seeming like a parody, which is yes, that's what he's good at, you know. And I do also want to point out that the villain uh, Yorgi, I don't have his name in front of me, but it's also the villain from The Fugitive, which is my favorite movie, um, which I'll actually get to talk about when we get to Metal Gear Solid Three. It's true. So why don't you do your third? Well, my third, my second, uh, on Her Majesty's oh, Secret second, Service, yes, yeah, is my fourth. So it's perfect. The most curiously maligned. Th- this is what I was talking about with the uh, the surface level stuff with Bond because people talk shit on on Her Majesty's Secret Service because that's the Lazenby movie and Lazenby. There's a lot in that movie he's not really up for, like, but also in his defense, it's a much more of a script than most Bonds get. But the thing with that movie has is, uh, it has. Two things that Bond movies usually don't have, which is an extended extended sequences without any action and like an actually convincing and somewhat compelling love story. Like Diana Rigg is terrific and like you actually believe that these two people are falling in love with each other. But then also it has maybe the two best I, – I think it has certainly the best – uh, set piece in the in the in the first ten or so movies, which is the skiing one, which is terrific. Yeah, and then it has uh, it has the big assault at the end on the hotel where uh, Bond slides down a uh, he's like slides on his belly down a uh, hallway and shoots a bunch of guys with a gun. It looks on on on, on ice. Sorry, slides on an ice hallway, a nice it, luge or something like yeah, that. Yeah, it looks awesome. It's a and it's shot. It's directed in a way that's like actually interesting and like inventive, which is. Especially those 60s. I mean, that's 60s filmmaking. Mainstream filmmaking is very much like slow, like maybe some slow dollies, but like panned out, like just flat. Think of think of every Connery Brown movie when he's not in, a, in an action scene. It's him walking into frame and the frame just kind of sitting right there and then him walking across and talking to somebody. It's very sitcom-y. Yeah, Honor, Honor Majesty's Secret Service has like a lot of cool shots. It looks good. 
Yeah, I was going to say it's easily the most interestingly and best shot of, yes. I think, all the Bond movies, but especially Certainly of its of those era. Yeah. Um, just the way they frame it, the way they use lights and color, especially in Blofeld's uh, shop uh, or whatever, his fortress up in the mountains. There's a lot of cool stuff when Bond's going from each girl's rooms. Oh, yeah. Um, also, all the shooting in the mountains of helicopters, of sunrises and sunsets is absolutely like some of the best on-set or on-site shooting in the franchise and in cinema. Um, and it basically pioneered the skiing set piece or a lot of the snow action, you know, tobogganing or sledding. Um, this was one of the first movies to really do it and film it in a way. You can definitely tell it's of its time with some of the blue screen work. Yeah. Um, but it, it's it's thrilling. It, it actually holds up really well. This was one of the movies I revisited last year. And it's always been one of my favorite Bond movies. I think... I like Lazenby's performance here, but it's one of those ones you know that if Connery was in, more people would probably have paid attention to it, yes. um, for better or for worse. Um, it also has a killer score. It's one of the few title songs that doesn't have lyrics, um, but there is a Louis Armstrong song in here. Uh, we have all the time in the world. Just one of his last songs, if I believe, if I'm correct. Yeah, I think so. And also very notable, uh, you mentioned Diana Rigg, uh, who played Olena Tyrell in Game of Thrones, which is how modern what? audiences probably know her. Yes, I had to drop it once. Uh, but she plays Teresa, who would go on to be Teresa Bond during the movie. Her and James Bond would get married during this film. And then at the very last scene, Blofeld drives by and kills Teresa. And that's kind of how the movie ends and sets up uh, Diamonds Are Forever, where Sean Connery would return. But uh, they would mention Teresa a couple more times. I think most notably, uh, For Your Eyes Only opens uh, on uh, what Bond visiting Teresa's grave. So yeah. um, that's one of the few pieces of Bond continuity that you know has kind of lived on uh, after this movie. Uh, I have Casino Royale third. Uh even though there's parts of it I don't think have held up all that well, like honestly, one of the worst excesses of this series is I can't remember the actress's name now, but when he's in the Bahamas at the beginning and he just has sex with that woman and then she gets killed, it's like one of the most callous. That felt like a step backwards almost from what they were trying to do. Yeah, like it's it's really it's really strange that it's in that movie, but um, no, I mean that movie really a, it tapped into like that Jason Bourne twenty four era of like brutal fighting but they did it they did the thing that i'm not going to give much credit to this is going to be a little bit of a departure i'm not going to give a whole lot of credit to the snyderverse stuff because i don't think it's very good the one thing i will give them credit for is casting ben affleck as batman is that ben affleck is like six three he's like a, a large man so it's like it's it's when christian bale's out there like doing horrible spin kicks to to you know stunt man it just looks it's just something about it doesn't look right like it's like no he couldn't do this but Affleck you can believe could actually beat somebody up if they took his donkeys you know if they made him angry enough yeah yeah <laughs> and like that's the thing with Daniel Craig is like Pierce Brosnan is not like Pierce Brosnan is a, a tall like but that was kind of he's a he's not physically intimidating he's a very distinguished gentleman that's sort of his thing Dalton's kind of in the middle but like more especially just never seems like a physical threat. Lazenby does because he's like a stuntman. He was a, you know, he's a big guy. And Con Connery was burly. He had some physical presence. Yeah. And also he's, he was just like, he's an intimidating person because we knew he was a piece of shit. He didn't, you know, he, he'd beat women if he had to. Yeah. Um, do not rest in peace, Sean Connery. Rest in piss. No, he sucks. Roger Moore was also like an arch conservative, so he can rest in piss too. Um, I was going to say Casino Royale has 
two absolutely stellar uh, set pieces that I love. Uh, there's the kind of parkour one that opens it up uh, with uh, Daniel Craig chasing uh, some mercenary or another, but, you know, he parkours. It's like one of the inventors of parkour. I forget his name again. I should have remember, I should have written it down. But yeah, uh, they go through a construction site. Craig runs through walls. It's all, it's not only a great action sequence, but it does it in a way that kind of tells you what kind of bond that Daniel Craig is going to be. It establishes his physicality and all that. What I was getting to is like, it's it's very believable that Daniel Craig is beating people up because he's a huge guy. He's like ripped. And uh, that really, it really sells the movie. It really works. Like the movie was, they they adjusted what kind of movie they're making to the person they cast, which is something that doesn't happen that often with these movies because they are very boilerplate. It's what happened with, as much as we love Living Daylights, that is obviously a Roger Moore script. Yes. And Dalton, Dalton made it work because he's one of the most charismatic people on the earth. But like License to Kill is much more a Dalton movie. And I think there's things about it that work better because of that. And Casino Royale is really one of the only other examples of them sort of adjusting what kind of movie they are making to the person that they cast. Yeah. No, I think that's a very good point. Uh, because Craig just kind of has kind of a rougher edge. And we describe James Bond as like, he's supposed to be a blunt instrument. And they explicitly say that phrase, um, M calls James Bond that. And when James Bond kills people in this movie, it's not like a clean and it doesn't have like a quippy line. Um, he has to struggle for his kills and this is supposed to be him at the very beginning of his double O status. Um, so it's supposed to be a rougher bond who does, who's not quite as suave or has, has it as figured out as he would later on um, during some of the Craig movies. But I do like that rougher edge quite a bit. Um, and, of course, it has Mads Mikkelsen, uh, a Kojima fave, so we have to point that out as well. Or Eva Green as Vesper is great. Yeah, it's one of Mads' first, like, big roles. It's, I think it's the first thing I remember seeing him in. Like, it's one of those things, too, like, uh, this is a weird example, but video game people get this. Troy Baker was around for a long time as like a bit role guy, but he really didn't like, I remember him in Mass Effect 3, but like The Last of Us and Bioshock Infinite were the first times that he became like a guy that you should know. And that's sort of what's going on with Mads, because I definitely had seen him in things before, but he was just like an actor. And I think Casino Royale was the first time that I was like, who is that about him? Which seems crazy in retrospect, because he's, (laughs) if you see Mads, you should immediately be like, hey, who's this guy? But yeah, you know, I was a teenager, so... Um, I will say one of my issues with Casino Royale, and this isn't a uh, cinematic critique, this is a Manu's life uh, idiosyncrasy, is uh, the Texas uh, Hold'em stuff was just a little bit too much for me just because I was knee-deep in the online gambling and playing with my friends on Friday and Saturday nights. And like it, it was obviously made for a larger audience to understand because the original Casino Royale script is about Baccarat, um, which I don't know the rules for. I just kind of take the cues from what the actors are telling me in terms of what's happening when uh, Bond plays Baccarat in previous movies. Uh, so I get why they did the Texas Hold'em stuff and like you were able to follow what was going on, but it was still uh, just a little bit cringe for me just because it is, uh, you know, kind of very obvious kind of where some of the hands were going if you were paying attention. Well, also the last hand is like mathematically absurd. It's like really stupid. But yeah, hey. the number of full houses and then yeah. four of a kind and then a straight flush. It's... It's it's really funny, but uh, so I think that actually sets up us going into my fifth movie, your fourth movie, which is Daniel Craig's third movie, uh, Skyfall, uh, which I think is again it it feels a little less like a James Bond more, movie and more just like a modern you know spy movie, uh, but I think it's just really well written. Uh, Javier Bardem is brought in to be. 
uh, the what's it called? The big bad. And he gives a great performance. I think this is Roger Deakins doing the photography. Yes. Uh, Roger Deakins, legendary director of photography, um, guy. And like, you can tell this is maybe right after on her Majesty's secret service or right next to it. The best, uh, looking James Bond movie. There's a great uh, fight scene with uh, the lights of Bacow, I believe it is, kind of lighting up Bond in the fight, and it's a very silhouetted fight, Um, but it's really interestingly shot. It looks great. Lots of color. Um, All the sets are really well-designed. I really like Skyfall a lot. I love the Adele theme song. Great. Um, I would be okay with Adele kind of getting that Shirley Bassey treatment and doing multiple Bond theme songs because she has the perfect voice uh, for it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Skyfall also gave us a little bit of James Bond continuity or canon as much as they ever want to acknowledge it in that they give us like the home that he grew up in, uh, which is called Skyfall. That uh, That's the manor and that gives the film its name. And, you know, you meet, uh, you see the bo- uh, the graves of his family there um, and you kind of get some backstory about his orphan upbringing and being born in Scotland and all that stuff. So that's all very fun. The last act is kind of a home alone. <laughs> uh, not direct parody, but it just kind of plays like it where Bond uses what he can around the house to fight back uh, Silva and his army. But I really love Skyfall. It's really great. It's great. It's terrific. Oh, uh, there's also just a great uh, moment where it looks like Judy Dench is going to die because she's giving this big rousing, I think she's quoting Tennyson um, and talking about like her role in this political world. And you think Javier Bardem is going to, you know, jump in and kill her. Um, It plays all really well. Um, It's just a really, it's one of the more dramatic moments in a James Bond movie, uh, which is not so, because a lot of them are very, you know, kind of campy and pulpy. Um, But this was just like a straight drama more or less. And it was really great. Yeah. Skyfall really works. Skyfall has, um, it has uh, uh, Ray Fiennes in it, which I'm always a fan of. We love Ray Fiennes. Yeah, Ray Fiennes, who takes over the M role at the end when, uh, again, spoilers, Judy uh, Judy Judy Dench's M dies. Um, I also like uh, Ben Wishaw uh, makes his debut as the new young Q. Yep. Um, he's a very fun uh, person. And uh, I'll just say right now, apropos of nothing, if you haven't seen the Paddington movies, especially Paddington 2, uh, please go watch them. Uh, ben Wishaw voices Paddington. He's also delightful in everything else I've seen him in. The Lobster um, is a really fucked up uh, movie, but he's he's really fun in that. Uh, so I, uh, Skyfall, I think, is great. And it, it kind of set up the James Bond template again to be in place for the rest of the Craig movies in terms of having Q um, doing a little more gadget stuff. It doesn't quite go full campy gadget stuff, but they have Q branch kind of aiding Bond. Um, the big bad, uh, the world domination. It kind of felt like... Well, the world domination stuff, I don't think... That movie works because it's it's a very... He just wants to kill M. Personal. He just wants to kill yes. M. He doesn't yes. have... Silva doesn't have any other kind of real... Uh, real goals, which is... It works. That's the thing. It's a thing that, like... I'm sure we can talk about it later. Um, this is going to be a really strange tangent, but considering it just ended, I think it works. Uh, it's really weird that there's a lot of criticism over the John Walker character in Falcon and the Winter Soldier when, like, he makes sense. Like, his character, he wants very specific... Uh, a lot of the Marvel movies have this problem where they know so much of the audience is going to keep watching that they don't have to do... They don't have to develop these characters quickly. So they're like, oh, if you watch these 12 movies, you can get, like, a good sense of who the Thor character is because they do, like, 10 minutes of character stuff in every movie. But, like, with the villains, a lot of these newer Marvel villains... We're getting to where, like, they know they're only going to be in this one thing. So they just have to, like, really quickly 
they have to actually like use economic screenwriting and like be efficient with how they tell the story. And it's like, you know exactly what he is like 20 minutes in. And that's it really, really works for the silver character in this and in, in Skyfall. Cause he doesn't show up to like halfway through the movie. And then he's only in like five or six scenes, but you very quickly understand like who he is. 006 is like that. 006 gets like a two minute speech about the Cossacks and about his family. And you're like, yeah, I understand. Like I get, I get what he, I, I understand what he wants, and you don't need anything more than that for a movie like this. Honestly, it just it works. I was gonna say there was definitely a little bit of Silva 006 parallel in terms of like the former agent who's kind of gone rogue, and I think mm-hmm. just that archetype also does some of that heavy lifting for you just by invoking it. Um, and but but it makes sense. It makes sense. So um, I like that route. I think that works for these movies, especially because it's supposed to be spy versus spy, and I like that dynamic well what i was just going to bring up too is that um that actually is a parallel it actually explicitly makes me think of the uh like the fat man or the psychomantis s scenes where they just sort of explain their characters as they're dying and i was like yeah i get it Mm -hmm. like i understand and uh we also picked a couple underrated titles uh we're going a little long so i don't want to spend too much time on this but uh a couple ones that i picked were tomorrow never dies which we've mentioned several times already it just has good action set pieces um it's kind of a fun take on the bond villain with uh jonathan price um they have a lot of fun gadgets Uh, well so it was in game of thrones did you, did you know that? Um, oh, yes. Jonathan Price was also in Game of Thrones. Uh, <laughs> I, was saving, I was saving that for my next uh, underrated choice, which is, I think, the best of the Roger Moore movies for your eyes only. Um, the Game of Thrones connection here is that the big big bad is played by Julian Glover, who's Grand Maester Picel, And one of his henchmen is played by Charles Dance, who was Tywin Lannister. So it's kind of, kind of an inversion. of He the, was Tywin Lannister? I didn't know that. Yeah, the toady, the one when uh, Bond goes on the I'm, ski I'm jump. Oh, <laughs> sorry. Charles Dance is in Game of Thrones? Why, why was I not told this? Um, so those are two. I think it's the best Roger Moore stuff. I definitely agree with that. There's some really fun skiing action in that. Um, I think there's a part where Moore is skiing on one ski, um, which is really fun. It also, um, I, I like the Bond girl in that one. It's the uh, Greek woman. I can't remember her name. She has extremely long hair and has a crossbow. Um, which is actually a weapon I'm surprised did not show up in any Metal Gear Solid game other than as a weapon for the fear. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it feels like that kind of silent weapon that would be good for yeah. uh, one of these games. So, um, And then you want to mention your underrated ones. We talked about one, uh, The Living Daylights. Yeah. I don't have anything else to say for it. It's great. And then I, I actually mentioned Thunderball earlier. I don't think Thunderball is a particularly good movie, but it just has that that's the one that feels the most like of all the Connery ones. It feels like a travel movie where it's just like, look at all these cool places he's going to look at this cool house. He's going to hang out at for like an hour and a half. Yeah. The bad guy being Largo, like number two as like the numbered bad guys. It's been in the previous bond uh, movies, Dr. No and from Russia with love, but this one's the one that people most notably cite. And the other thing, I think it really pioneered a lot of underwater action sequences the same way on her majesty's circuit service did, um, what's it called? The skiing ones. Um, it is a little bit slower because um, I watched it recently, but it's actually really beautifully shot and all the action underwater is really clear and clean. Like I was surprised. I thought it'd be very choppy or anything, but no, they hold the camera, long takes, like not a lot of cuts. Um, you can see everything. It obviously goes a little slower because, you know, when people are wrestling underwater, it's just a little slower. But um, I think Thunderball holds up. I think um, it's a, it's just a fun movie. It's just a very James Bond movie. Yes. Um, not necessarily spectacular, but if you're looking for a Bond movie, it has all the Bond trappings you would want. It, it fits in the same way, like, it's not 
it's kind of the movie that people are unconscious, subconsciously thinking of when they like, because if you think of a sixties mud movie, you probably think of Dr. No or Goldfinger or from Russia, but those movies are like more iconic. Whereas Thunderball just kind of does its job and then goes away. And like it, you don't really think about it, but like it's, it's there and it's sort of in your subconscious after you see it. So it's, I like the movie. It's, I think it's a good movie. Um, oh, sorry. I skipped over some of our least favorite movies, and I really don't want to spend too much time on this. No. Um, but I'm going to say Spectre uh, is one of mine just because I find it very dull. Yes. A complete waste of Christoph Waltz as Blofeld. And it it's just unmemorable in every way. It just I, I don't think about it at all. I'm Don Draper in the elevator. Uh, second Don Draper reference this episode. But... There's been more than one time since it came out that I was like, oh man, I can't wait to do a sequel to Skyfall. And then remember like, oh, they did already. (laughs) And it wasn't very good. And uh, my other one is Diamonds Are Forever, which I just don't think is very good. Connery looks a little over the hill. Yeah. Um, There's a cool uh, car uh, set piece in this um, where he kind of flips uh, American muscle car. I forget what exactly he's driving, but he flips it on side a little bit to get down a narrow alley. Um, But other than that, it's pretty unremarkable. Um, Kind of has some stereotypical gay queer henchmen Mm -hmm. that uh, don't work. I actually think this is a movie like I would actually be okay with them officially remaking Diamonds Are Forever um, because I think it would be kind of interesting to do uh, something like that. But um, other than that, it just really is unmemorable for me. So what are some of your least favorite Bond movies? I thoroughly dislike A View to a Kill because it has the same kind of problem where it's like Moore was kind of old when he became Bond, but this point in eight in what 85, he was like in his fifties and they just couldn't, they completely waste Christopher Walken and Grace Jones being evil. It makes no sense. The only good set piece is the last one. And that's the one where they have to shoot from so far away so they can mask the fact that it's a stuntman because Roger Moore couldn't run in a straight line because he was too full of vinegar and whatever else old conservative British people eat like boiled eggs. I don't know. Um, it's just not a good movie at all. Like I, I just have a thorough, it's not like offensive. It's just distasteful to me. I don't like it at all. And then Die Another Day, I think, is one of the worst movies ever made. Now, there is some of that, like, it is a little enjoyable to, like, look back at, that. like, this is what 2002 looked like. But, man, it's bad. It's got the worst, probably the worst song Madonna has ever recorded, mm-hmm. which is saying a lot because <laughs> she's recorded a lot. She's done a lot. A lot of great stuff, a lot of not great stuff. Yeah. But, yeah, that, it's pretty bad. Yeah, that's like saying a song is Bob Dylan's worst song because it's it's got competitors. Um Right. I'm allowed to say that I'm a Bob Dylan guy, but boy, he's got some bad shit. Yeah. Um, yeah. I dine of the day. I think it's just like it. I mean, it's the only blockbuster from that era that I would say I is as bad of a film as attack of the clones, my least favorite film. So like it's up there, man. It's, it's just a terrible movie. Like it's awful. It's nonsensical. It's- it does have one extremely funny, an unintentionally funny bit where it's uh, James Bond, Master Spy, where his uh, way to get out of a <laughs> <He's>, <laughs> yeah, you he know pushes talking. a guy in a wheelchair or something, <laughs> right? <laughs> just walks away. It's like, all right, man. <laughs> Master of stealth, James Bond. But if the movie was like winking at you, it'd be funny, but it's very much not. That movie is very serious. It has a lot of tonal whiplash because it has like the serious North Korea in prison for nine years opening, and then it has that shit. And like the stealth car. Yeah, and then it has like the, the ice the ice mansion is like cool. Like I think that's actually a cool place to have like a set piece go on. But like Gustav Graves is a bad villain. Like he's just not interesting at all. And he's like too scenery in a way that like that actor's just not up to it. It's just not 
Like imagine like Carrie Ells in that role or someone like someone more. It's it's the Matthew Goody it's Matthew Good problem in Lost where it's just like guy that guy can't carry that material. I think that's exactly right. And I guess I I met Rosamund Pike here and I like her generally. Yeah. It's I'm not in love with her, um, but I I think you know this is probably the first place where she landed for me. I could say they could have done the Halle Berry character worse. Like she does get to be his equal in a lot of ways, but she's just not. It's it's too much. It, this came right at that that really sour point when studios were starting to the CGI was becoming good enough that you could do a lot of CGI and it looked quote unquote good. But um like like Tomorrow Never Dies is has kind of a similar premise of like Bond teams up with a uh, female agent who is his equal. But like that movie just has Michelle Yeoh doing roundhouse kicks to people and it's cool. Like Halle Berry's not doing roundhouse kicks. Like no no disrespect to her. That's not she's not a fight actress. That's not what she does. So instead, it's just like Halle Berry jumps off of a CGI cliff and shoots a guy, and it's like just not as good. It does it doesn't work. It's also very gawkerish at her. Um, it, it can be, but I, I think it, to that movie's defense, this is a movie that Halle Berry was in in the early two thousands. That's kind of what she did. <laughs> yes, and you know, no fair play to her. That's if you're, if you're, if you're Halle Berry, you can do that. Going on to uh, maybe some of our favorite, uh, you know, things or favorite, you know. Our favorites from the Bond franchise, so to speak. So we'll just do the first one that's the simplest one. Favorite actor. Um, I think just as an actor, my favorite is Timothy Dalton. Um, He only was in two movies, but I think for the James Bond that would be in the movies that I would want to see for a James Bond movie, he would be the lead of it just because he brings that seriousness. The lack of humor, but when he does, I kind of have that smile wink in his performance it just cuts really well i think it lands really well um and i just think he has kind of that physical presence and can play a very serious bond so um i think he's my favorite actor even though he only appeared in two movies yes um and i grew up with i I mean i like brosnan too but but uh timothy dalton is the best actor to play james bond by a significant margin yeah craig is probably second you know, I, I can I can prove to you that Timothy Dalton is the best Bond actor. He's been in stuff that you've seen after being in Bond and Don in the Bond movies. Connery was in stuff because he was Sean Connery. He was cast in uh, both uh, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade and The Rock because he was supposed to be invoking James Bond. Yeah, um, it was not because he's some. I mean, I don't think he's a bad actor or anything like that. But if you think about Sean Connery movies, besides those two movies, you're not finding a lot of good ones outside of the his League of Extraordinary Bonds. Gentlemen. Yes. Very um, funny that he took that movie after it, after he rejected being in Lord of the Rings because it didn't make sense to him. And it's like, but this makes sense? This shit? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think uh, some of it was he was offered that and he might have been offered like The Architect and The Matrix or something. I think it was so. like two things he was offered and he's like, I don't understand this. I don't want it. And then the movies went on to be huge success. And he's like, okay, fine, then I'll do this. And I think it might be his last star or role on cinema which is just a really crappy way to go out on he did get, he, he was in the um from russia with love game which worked pretty well the only real like he actually gave gives a decent performance the problem is that uh it's just strange seeing like 45 40 year old sean connery's body with like 85 year old sean connery's voice coming out of it it just was very strange but yeah yeah so like modern simpsons um yes all right, moving on. Uh, our favorite title song. I'll let you go first. Uh, what's your favorite song from the James Bond? Shoot, can I count on Her Majesty's Secret Service? Yes, you, you, yes, you can. Then yes, I would. But I would say, I, I want to say that my favorite, um, let's say title song. I want to say song with. I, I like I like the Lights of the Kill theme a lot. 
Yeah, uh, Gladys Knight, I believe that is. Gladys Knight, yes. Uh, Gladys Knight, I've it's great. eaten at her chicken and waffles place in Atlanta, um, not far from Piedmont Park. I hope it survived the pandemic. But yeah, I think License to Kill is a great. It's like I got a license to kill and I'm going straight for your heart, uh, I believe. I almost said that earlier, yeah. Uh, so, uh, no, I think that's a great one. My favorite title song is uh, Carly Simon's Nobody Does It Better. That's a good one. Uh, which is the song from, uh, to, uh, sorry, uh, the Spy Who Loved Me, and I believe you actually see Carly Simon in the, uh, what's it called, the opening sequence with the silhouettes and the girls and bullets flying across, which is- that, I think that's true, yeah. The only Bond uh, sequence where that happens from. And before we move on to the next one, I do want to make sure we do mention Shirley Bassey explicitly, who did the theme songs for Goldfinger, Diamonds Are Forever, and Moonraker, and all three of- Diamonds Are Forever is a strong a strong contender also. Yeah, I, I, I'd say all three of those songs theoretically could be a legitimate someone's favorite Bond song. Mm-hmm. It might be the best part about Moonraker, um, but like- Goldfinger especially is iconic. I think the Goldfinger performance is the one that the Snake Eater uh, title song is trying to ape most of all. Yes. So. Um, then uh, favorite henchman. Uh, I'll go first here. Um, I'm going to pick the more serious one here, not a goofy one. I love Red Grant from from Russia with Love. Damn it. Um, <laughs> just because he, even though he is kind of the you know, the one who Connery faces down is kind of the climactic battle, um, it's all still kind of working under... Uh, Blofeld and the chess guy and Colonel Klebs. So he kind of comes into the more of the henchman role or the Bond equivalent. So uh, he's my favorite because he does a lot of his own spy craft in the early parts of the mm-hmm. movie, tailing Bond, uh, killing people, posing. He's introduced in the pre-credit sequence killing, you think he's killing Bond because he's killing a guy wearing a Bond mask, which is great. Exactly. Um, so that's my choice. Uh, what about you? Hmm. I'll go with a twofer here. Um, go back to License to Kill. And I'll say uh, the combination of Everett McGill and Benicio Del Toro, both both very famous character actors, both being just evil bastards who get killed. Um, Benicio, like, like it's really funny. 22 year old Benicio just having like the, looking like the most looking, looking the most like a murderer of anyone in the history of cinema. <laughs> yes. Yeah. He feeds Felix Leiter to a shark and then doesn't he get he gets the he gets the uh, thrown in the shredder yes that's how he gets killed and then Everett McGill playing uh, a turncoat CIA agent right before his famous turn as the most likable person on earth in Twin Peaks um he gets fed to sharks oh that's his oh that's his fate well there was a guy who got his head exploded in the depressurizing chamber that's not Everett McGill uh, Everett McGill's the guy um it's just funny to me that he's in a Bond movie because like his entire career it's like I feel like it's like if Robert Forster was in it was a Bond villain. It'd be like what? <laughs> Why? Like just nice old this this nice gentleman, the vacuum salesman. Yeah, yeah, but yeah, I, I just like seeing Everett McGill because I was watching Twin Peaks again right before I watched License to Kill like two years ago, and I was like, hey, I know you. It's Big Ed. Um, yeah, License to Kill has a bunch of it. It works because it gives you a bunch of really despicable. Like usually Bond, it's political, like a lot of the Bond plots are politicized and it's like, I don't know if I really, how I feel about this guy going into this politically charged situation and just like killing people. But with License Kill, it's just like a bunch of pieces of shit, like a bunch of criminals, like actually like bad people who I don't think you're really supposed to feel any sympathy for. And Bond just gets to methodically kill all of them. And then he blows Robert Davi up at the end and I wish that happened in real life so we could avoid having current Robert Davi, but hey. How about uh, your favorite Bond girl? Hmm. I kind of want to say Natalia, but Natalia's like, I don't know. She's not 
she gets kind of a different role. She kind of holds a mirror up. Yeah. Um, she holds a mirror up to Bond in a good way, and I think that makes her one of the Oh, no, 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 no. Ves- Vesper. Sorry, Eva Green. Yes. I, I think Definitely the best, yeah. That's probably my choice. Um, I'm going to mention... Or Diana Rigg. Diana Rigg as Teresa Bond. I think that's a good one. And then I didn't have her name earlier, so I'm going to mention it now. Uh, Melina Havlick, uh, who's the Bond girl in For Your Eyes Only, um, the girl with the crossbow. I, she has a more active role in these movies and is not a damsel in distress type. Um, she's one of the soldiers in the final raid at the end of that movie. I think she's played generally very well. Um, so there's that. Um, and then favorite Bond gadget... I, I mentioned the remote control car from Tomorrow Never Dies, so I'm going with that. Yeah, I, 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 that would honestly be my choice. If I had to pick another one, it would be the suitcase from From Russia with Love. Uh, it's a little, it's more of a briefcase, not a suitcase, rather. Um, what it has is it has some uh, gold uh, in the inside lining. It has an ejectable knife from the side. Um, it has a deodorant can that... Uh, can spray gas if you do not open it correctly, uh, which can be used as a trap. And then it carries Bond sniper rifle. So it's a very multifaceted thing. I think perhaps the most famous of Bond's ga- gadgets is his watch, which has done multiple things over um, the franchise from being a magnet uh, to being a laser to being a razor. Um, we've seen that uh, his watches do quite a bit over time. Yeah, And I think something that is kind of referenced a little bit in Metal Gear Solid Five because... Uh, Venom Snake's watch is shown quite a bit. It's a very 80s Casio-style watch that I actually think does show up in The Living Daylights or a movie right around there. Um, Mm -hmm. And then uh, last thing in terms of our favorite Bonds, and we've kind of mentioned some of these as we've gone along, is our favorite sequences or set pieces. And I've mentioned already um, the Red Grand train fight, the Colonel Club hotel fight from From Marshal With Love, and the GoldenEye tank part in... um, golden eye obviously the other one i really love to highlight is the opening sequence to moonraker a movie i otherwise don't think is very good Um, but this is a sequence where james bond is pushed out of a plane without a parachute um uh, pushed out by jaws and then he basically has to uh, contort himself in midair to go and catch up someone who does have a parachute rip it off his back and then he has to fend off jaws before um, you know, opening his shoot and all that stuff. It's something that I think was mimicked a little bit in True Lies. Uh, I think that's the one. Maybe I'm thinking of a racer, but it was definitely an Arnold Schwarzenegger movie. It's definitely kind of a pioneering in the skydiving uh, action set pieces of its time and going forward. I mean, you can't say it was officially outdone until Mission Impossible Fallout some, what, 40-something years later, so hey. Yeah, it's which, by the way, that Mission Impossible Fallout scene is incredible because it's a single take. They work in some CGI, and otherwise it's just Tom Cruise sucks, but he's a madman, and I like that he's risking his life for that. Yeah, shit. like it, it's a weird thing where like he's an objectively not a good person, but he's also almost single-handedly keeping big-budget uh, stunt cinema alive. So like I respect him for it. And those movies all whip-ass. They're all really good. Even 2, even Mission Impossible 2 is a good movie. I love it. It's so over the top and John Woo-y that I can't be mad at it. Do you like John Woo? Then you will like this movie. <laughs> also, if you like Metallica and Limp Biscuit, you will like this movie. Do you like Do you like a video where Lars Ulrich, it implies that Lars Ulrich gets blown up? I do. <laughs> that video is, abs- is absurd. Patently absurd. Snake, have you seen 007 from Russia with Love? I don't like those movies. Real spies are nothing like James Bond. It's pure fantasy. 
All right, so let's let's bring it back home now, and let's talk more directly about the 007 to Metal Gear Pipeline, uh, and then wrap that up by focusing in on Metal Gear Solid 3 Snake Eater, which will be the next game in our podcast coverage. Hideo Kojima cites the 007 franchise as the biggest of his cinematic inspirations for Metal Gear Solid. Spies, secrets, end-of-the-world scenarios, and villains with strange or idiosyncratic powers— uh, that sounds like Metal Gear to me. He cites James Bond as an ideal man um, in a way that he's like always cool and calm and sophisticated, not in that he's the ideal behavior for a man um, in terms of, you know, we mentioned the misogynistic um, qualities of James Bond earlier. Yeah. For all that, we often see that the Snake characters, whether it's Big Boss or Solid Snake, reject the 007 comparison in-universe. That's not how it actually works, they often say, and they don't think they'd measure up to Ian Fleming's creation anyway. I do think there is something very similar at the core of the both characters, like something dark and dead and sad, but that's kind of hidden under different outward attitudes they have about things, whereas Bond is always kind of seen as cool and smirking at stuff where um, the snake characters are often very dour and kind of grimacing at stuff, so to speak. Yeah, yeah. Well, the snake character is like, what would happen if that was actually your job? <laughs> like, what would happen to you internally if that, if that sort of wet work was what you really did for a living? It would just sort of, you kind of would just cease being a person after a while. Uh, James Bond and Snake, whether we're talking about solid or naked here, are physically similar in the sense that they generally have tall builds, dark, sharp features, deep voices. Uh, They're generally depicted as smokers. Obviously, smoking on film in Western cinema has kind of gone away. um, It's it's cool. It makes you cool. Specifically needed. But uh, Solid Snake uh, and... So I think uh, you see uh, James Bond smoking both cigars and cigarettes. Uh, Solid Snake famously smokes cigarettes, whereas uh, Naked Snake slash Big Boss famously smokes cigars. But another commonality um, between the characters. And they generally have very similar fictional histories in that they have military experience prior to some intelligence work experience. Um, They're usually depicted as grizzled veterans of espionage wars, at least, um, a dinosaur at times, Um, even though, you know, Operation Snake Eater is really uh, Snake's first mission for the Fox unit and ditto, you know, Solid Snake and uh, Foxhound in Metal Gear 1 in 1987. Um, There's definitely some kind of history prior to that, even though they're kind of rookies in a sense going into those missions. Um, And they're also generally well-decorated and well-regarded during the course of their narratives. Sometimes they become world-famous where people who aren't actively involved with them know, oh, hey, that's, you know, you're the legendary Solid Snake or you're James Bond, you know, the famous uh, British agent or whatever. So um, that's another similarity they have. And then 007 most often fights hand-to-hand or with pistols, which is how most MGS games are through, let's say, the first two-thirds of them before you start getting the more increased powerful weapons and stuff. Um, And then usually completing a Metal Gear Solid game allows you to unlock a tuxedo outfit, which is, you know, most commonly associated with James Bond. A lot of his spycraft occurs um, in very nice threads. So usually just beating a Metal Gear Solid title will unlock a tuxedo that you can use for your next playthrough. And I 
I don't think we have to say that's an explicit reference. And uh, story structure-wise, often the uh, Metal Gear Solid supporting cast is very similar to James Bond supporting cast. You have um, an M figure, whether it's a colonel or the major. Um, You have kind of a money penny uh, figure who kind of saves your data, whether that's paramedic or Mei Ling. Um, You have uh, an equipment person that kind of subs in for Q, whether that's Otacon or Sigint or Nastasha Romanenko. Um, So you kind of have a supporting cast that kind of plays the same roles of, you know, kind of admin assistant, tech guy, and then commanding officer roles uh, surrounding Snake and James Bond. I never really thought about that, but that's very true. Often the story uh, uh, involves the fate of the world hanging in the balance, um, and then nuclear bombs are very often involved. Um, The stories often involve the infiltration of an enemy fortress, because as we mentioned, the big bad usually has a fortress, which often becomes the last act of a 007 movie. Um, There's a lot of reliance on stealth and intelligence gathering, and then you face off against enemies with extraordinary abilities or technology. I don't think James Bond has anything as intense as, say, Psycho Mantis or The End, Um, but those kind of really weird quirks to the villains are something that uh, Metal Gear Solid, again, kind of explicitly borrows from James Bond. We do want to point out that there are some key thematic differences or maybe just satires on uh, James Bond in the Metal Gear Solid world. Um, In terms of interacting with uh, women characters, uh, we mentioned in our Metal Gear Solid 1 coverage that Snake often goes through the motions of flirtation, where he's like, he knows he has to say a flirty line here because that's what James Bond would do. Um, but it doesn't quite seem that his heart is in it in the same way, and in a good way, in that he's not being overtly kind of predatorial in the way that he talks to the women characters over the codec or in person. Uh, Snake is generally depicted as a sadder and more pitiable figure than James Bond, though that, again, has definitely changed over time. I think starting with GoldenEye and then especially in the Daniel Craig era, you see kind of a modern lens on James Bond, viewing him as kind of a relic and a kind of a decrepit figure, so to speak. And then, you know... It's supposed to be a rejection of spycraft as big explosions and quippy lines and a lot of hot sex. You know, real spycraft in the world is um, like more like a John Le Carré novel, like I mentioned, where you're you're slipping notes and secrets, somehow meeting informants in public and a lot of intelligence and counterintelligence and counter counterintelligence. Um, not the flashiness of James Bond, which uh, Snake explicitly says is the difference between real life spycraft and James Bond spycraft. With no, you know, irony, the fact that Snake's going to have a rocket launcher taking down, a, you know, a metal Godzilla by the end of the movie. Um, so Metal Gear Solid plays into the tropes while also kind of critiquing the tropes or at least saying this is not how it actually goes. It uses James Bond as a catalyst to talk about that in a way. Um, going into some explicit references in these games, um, I think the first one that showed up back in the original Metal Gear titles on MSX is that Big Boss was specifically patterned to look like Sean Connery. Um, like if you look at Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake and the codec calls with Big Boss, it's Sean, Sean Connery with an eye patch. It's absolutely unmistakable. Yeah. And then... Uh, in metal in that same game, Metal Gear 2 Solid Snake on the MSX, you kill Gray Fox at the end with a makeshift flamethrower um, with, you know, an aerosol spray and cigar, which is exactly how Roger Moore kills a snake in Live and Let Die. 
Um, and then also, uh, like the torture table that both Snake and Raiden um, are tortured on in the first two Metal Gear Solid titles. It's very similar to the way that Sean Connery is strapped down in Goldfinger um, by Goldfinger. Um, and that's where the whole infamous, do you expect me to talk? No, Mr. Bond, I expect you to die line comes from. Um, but it's a very similar kind of setup to the Raiden and Snake oh, yeah. um, torture sequences as well. For sure. Do you have any other... Uh, references not from metal gear uh not explicitly it's hard because there's so many and they're so baked in that it's really hard to say um or like remember because sometimes they hit you with them so frequently that it kind you kind of become numb to yeah it. it's something i think we have to we have to kind of talk about as they come up like in the game because again this the reason we're doing this episode now is because uh um metal gear Solid 3 is the bond game like full stop like it's openly a james bond trying to be a james bond game like in a way that the other ones even though they reference a lot of bond stuff just don't even come close to doing so there's the previous games reference james bond in a way like not just explicitly talking about them but like invoking the trappings of like the tuxedo like stuff in universe kind of uh what metal gear solid 3 does is stuff that's only for the audience like the title song yes and like just the whole presentation of the game is james bond yes um the opening sizzle reel is the James Bond song. It's the Snake Eater, you know, theme. So it's not just that it's talking about it and referencing it through storyline and explicitly discussing James Bond, but it's also presenting the final product as a James Bond product. Yes. Um, so, uh, and then we, we will mention some of the similarities or some of the references specifically from Metal Gear Solid 3. I think the aforementioned support staff similarities most equally applies to Naked Snake support staff in Metal Gear Solid 3, where uh, Major Zero is the most explicit match to M, uh, not at least in part because of the British accents. Uh, Paramedic definitely has that Money Penny vibe. And then uh, Q, Sigint are very similar as well. I think it has the most direct matches of any of Snake's supporting staffs. I would agree with that, yeah. And then uh, going along with that, the main quote unquote Bond girl of Snake Eater is. Uh, Tatiana or Eva. Um, that name Tatiana, I think, is lifted right from from Russia with Love, um, because the main Russian uh, woman who's Bond's love interest in that is also named Tatiana. Um, the game is uh, or is structured like a Bond movie with a big high stakes opening sequence that kind of sets up everything. It ends with a nuclear explosion. You get your main song, and then you get your uh, main story itself that kind of opens with the mission briefing, you and Major Zero in a room, um, kind of setting up the stakes of the rest of um, the story. It even it even engages directly with Cold War politics the way that those Bond movies did to where, like, the other games... Metal Gear, MGS one is kind of a demar. I guess I guess it's like Zanzibar Land and stuff, but MGS one is like directly a demarcation between the actual history of the twentieth century and Metal Gear Solid timeline. Mm -hmm. So like, yeah, Snake Eater kind of exists. Like they explicitly reference stuff that really happened all the time in that in that intro. Yeah, like yeah, it's 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 wild. Yeah, no, I think it's interesting because you can say the Solid Snake era, which is always set in the near future. Mm -hmm. um, is definitely a little more 
fantastical and the themes tend to be more about cultural culture and art. Yeah. Whereas the big boss era tends to be more historical materialism in terms of its analysis or the themes it's playing on. Uh, when we get to Snake Eater, and actually there's a lot of culture because it's so driven by its film influences, um, but we're also probably going to spend more time talking about historical stuff in terms of the Cuban Missile Crisis or what the world looked like following World War II yeah. and what... Um, you know, kind of the nuclear landscape looked at the time. I think we're going to have to do a little more history as opposed to um, a little more fictional research with um, those games. Mm. Um, so uh, going to the opening of uh, Snake Eater itself, it opens with the Halo jumps. The world's first Halo jump, which I always thought was funny. I was going to say, uh, Halo here is an acronym, H-A-L-O for high altitude, low opening, uh, which is basically you're jumping out um, of a plane and you're basically falling most of the way down and then opening your parachute very late. Um, this is a mechanism used for avoiding radar detection or just counter, you know, fire or just any kind of defense. Because if you're slowly gliding down on a parachute, you're more likely to be picked off by a sniper or something like that. Um, so that's the whole point. It's supposed to be a stealthy below radar, uh, incursion. And the first time I ever heard of a halo jump was in Tomorrow Never Dies, uh, where Bond has to make a halo jump into water um, to avoid, I think, Chinese radar so he can investigate a sunken ship, uh, which, you know, had some kind of uh, what's a weapon or targeting system removed from it. Uh, we didn't mention it during the Bond trope section, but there's a lot of times where he has to go to an underwater ship wreckage to get some kind of nuclear targeting mechanism. Mm -hmm. um, that kind of rears its head several times. So um, that's a very explicit Bond thing to me or Bond connection to me. Um, also, in during the course of the game, you get a cigarette spray weapon, which you know looks like a cigarette, and then you spray it, um, and then it has knockout gas in it. Um, there have been various cigarette weapons throughout the James Bond franchise. I think I think the most notable one is you only live twice um, where it, the cigarette is also a little bit of a dart gun. And when Bond is facing down Blofeld in his secret volcano lair, he asks for a cigarette so he can shoot a bullet at some sort of uh, computer, you know, whatever is controlling their uh, astronaut hijacking systems, whatever nonsense. Yeah. Um, so the cigarette, again, it's a weapon that's supposed to be concealed in plain sight. That's what a lot of the James Bond gadgets are, and that's what the SIG spray weapon is here. And then stuff like the hovercrafts that are kind of sci-fi in Snake Eater because there aren't, you know, actual hovercrafts like that in our real world. Um, those are things that are partially inspired by kind of James Bondy technology. You see things like, again, in You Only Live Twice and Little Nelly, which is like this little automated plane helicopter thing that Bond flies around in. It's kind of goofy and it's kind of not quite steampunk, but has that kind of vibe to it. It's, um, it's that 50s futurism vibe. It's that like Walt Disney, like near future Tomorrowland stuff that a lot of the 60s Bond movies had. That's what that is for sure. And, you know, this game is also just, it's very showy, and we're going to talk about its main theme of scene, but, like, Ocelot in this is very showy, and I guess that's true for Ocelot in anything. <laughs> um, but it's all just, you know, there, I think there's a lot of great spycraft, just in terms of a raw spy story. I think Snake Eater is the best, yes. you know, Metal Gear Solid story. I don't think that's a very bold opinion to have. But the layers and layers of double cross between um, the boss and Eva and Ocelot is actually just really well-structured uh, in a way that's... And it's probably confusing if you're not, like, paying, 
attention to it or not replaying it, but it actually makes a lot of sense. Like this might be the bond or sorry, a metal gear narrative that holds together best just as a story. Mm -hmm. Um, and they, you know, whether they ruin that or not with, you know, some stuff they do in metal gear solid five, we'll discuss that at its time. But, um, those were most of the references I pulled out from metal gear solid three. Um, but there are going to be so many during the course of, um, the game that we can't like just, recall from memory, but as we play it again, I'm sure we'll bring up as we go along. Mm -hmm. For England, James? No. For me. And that's mission complete for this episode. Our frequency is podcastsonsfrontiers at gmail.com and at podsonsfront on twitter.com and Instagram. I've been Manu, also known as Manuclear Bomb. I'm still Brian. Goodbye. <laughs> Shout out to our sound editor, Stephen Boyd, a.k.a. DJ Empirical on Twitter. Please remember to like, review, subscribe on your favorite podcast application. And so until next time, remember, the world is not enough. Valentin Zukovsky describing Bond. Shaken, but not stirred. Um, we love right. Valentin Zukovsky, don't we, folks? But also, it's a game, so whatever. Yeah, who care? <laughs>